Every demand gen marketer knows the feeling of being stuck on that MQL hamster wheel. And it seems to be a hot topic these days, but very few people on LinkedIn will actually tell you how to make the jump and land it. Moving away from MQLs is a gradual process, doesn't happen overnight, and requires some big internal combos with the leadership team. On today's episode of DGU, we'll give you an inside look at how we moved away from measuring MQLs and got closer to pipeline and revenue. Demand Gen U is officially in session. Let's do it. So let's start it. So Jason, I just need to give a quick disclaimer before we start this episode. If you're looking for a Demand Gen U episode on attribution, this is not it. We've kind of made a joke about not wanting to do a Demand Gen U episode on attribution just because I think you hate it after how much time and money and people you've thrown at it over the years, especially at Tableau, but this is not an attribution episode. No, no, we're going to avoid that. I don't know. I guess anytime you talk about reporting, there's always attribution involved in some way, but yeah, we're not talking about that. We're just talking about, we're talking about how you get from, how you get closer to revenue in your reporting and in goal setting, I think too, which is the most, the more important thing. So this is a layup. I'll see how you answer this question, but this exact topic is something that I've seen come up in our own community, as well as some of the other B2B marketing communities that I'm in right now. So why do you think people are asking about this topic now? It's even more important now when like things aren't going so well. And so when everybody's meeting their goals, it's funny. This always, I've seen this happen so many times. When all the departments are meeting their goals, nobody asks for any data, really. It's just like, all you have to really show them is the fact that you're meeting that goal. Like, look, we're meeting our ARR goal, let's say. Great. I don't care about anything else then. I don't want to bother myself with that data. I don't care how much you're wasting. You end up like, I don't care how much money you're wasting. Um, the fact that you are within your budget and we're meeting the primary goal, that's all that people cared about. And so now when things get tight and people maybe are not making their goals, then all of a sudden we get armchair marketers coming in and a lot of wanting to dig into the data and try and tell you what you missed, like why you weren't measuring something. So yeah, it's a hamster wheel itself, just on that whole cycle of like, times are good, nobody cares about data, times are not so good, everybody cares about data. And that's a cycle I've seen go around and around too. So that's really, I think, the main reason people are getting more, leaning more into it, because they're having to, more of our, more of us marketers are having to really tell the story of what our dollars are doing. So I imagine we'll come to some of this later on this episode, but for the people who are dealing with armchair marketers right now and having to go through the hell that you just described, any advice that you'd give to them to navigate those conversations? Ask them why they feel they're qualified to do your job for you. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> and start with your CEO, ask them that first. What makes you qualified to be telling me how to do my job? <laughs> yeah, then you get fired. So don't take that advice. And then um, let us know how that goes. And yeah, yeah. don't blame me that. when you don't have a job. Yes. No, I think it's being buttoned up yourself. You know what I mean? Because the more buttoned up you are and confident in it, the less like holes that are going to be poked. And honestly, like you could have the you could have the most incorrect data. I'm not saying to do this, but I'm just saying this is the a reality. You could have the most incorrect data set. And if you present it just so confidently and just you're able to walk through it just point by point and the math actually, the math is wrong, but it adds up, you can almost get things across that are completely a farce. You know what I mean? And so I'm not saying to do that, but 
that's the importance of confidence in your data. Every leader that I've ever worked for or had to report up to, if there's ever any like uncertainty in your voice or your presentation, it just gets dug into immediately. I don't know if it's subconscious. I don't know if that's just what, how leaders operate, but that's been like 100% of my experience. You show any weakness, like it's just going to get lasered in on and opened up. And so learning presentation skills and getting very confident in the data, I think is, and then having a story to tell with it, I think are the best blockers for the armchair marketer. It's kind of funny that you mentioned that because there was a, I think it was a LinkedIn post or an old blog that Jason Lemkin was talking about yesterday, I think. And basically he said the key to getting promoted was knowing your shit better than anyone else in the room. So I feel like that kind of meshes with a lot of what he's suggesting when, you know, no matter how complete or incomplete the data is, when you're presenting your story to the board, to your leadership team, to your CEO, you have to know it better than anyone else in the room. And the reality is so many marketing leaders that I've worked for don't know their data. They rely on their staff to do the number crunching and they don't actually take the time to really understand what's going on in it. And then let's say you're reporting up to your CMO and the CMO is now taking that data to a leadership or board meeting or whatever. They don't often do a great job of supporting it either. And so then they get dug into and then they come back in and they try and dig in. And so if you're a marketing leader and you're listening to this, you should be so close to your metrics and understand them better than, like Mark said, better than any of your peers can ever even try to. Imagine walk, and this, I've seen this happen before. Imagine walking into a board meeting or just a leadership meeting with C-level folks and the CMO presents something and then the head of sales prevent, presents the same thing, but with different data and more confidently. And then that the head of sales is now actually dictating what marketing has to do. And nobody wants to be in that position. I've seen that happen where like the, literally the head of sales came in with better data about marketing than the CMO did. And that's just a recipe for disaster. So get really good on your metrics, be confident in them, and then also be like, be transparent about it. Don't try and sugarcoat things that are actually not working well. That also can throw you off because if people can look at the raw data and they make their own, if you're presenting it in clear enough way and they can make their own assumptions, but you're presenting something that is trying to make it shiny or sugarcoat it, you're also going to lose credibility there too. So be honest about the things that are not working well. Like this is not working well, but then make sure you're not, but this is what we're doing about it. These are the three things we're doing to address this. So yeah, this could turn into a whole different episode of how to how to broker data. I'm, get, I'm getting it back on track. So <laughs> this is going to be tough for me because I have gotten good at this, but oftentimes I have to fill in some of your memory gaps. Yep. And the first part of this episode I actually wasn't here for the first five months of you officially being the VP of marketing. So if you don't remember a detail, you're going to have to remember it because I can't help fill it in for you. So I'm going to make my second guess. Yeah. Yeah. So no, I tried to remind myself before prepping for this episode. I was like, God, what were we doing three years ago? Oh my God. <laughs> so for people who haven't heard this yet, you were still at Workfront, I think in the fall of 2019, but advising metadata on the side. So you were still very much involved at metadata, but you did not take over as the marketing leader until what, March, 2020, I think it was right before yeah. the yep. little thing happened in the outside world. So let's go back to March, 2020. It feels like it was 10 years ago at this point. When you stepped in, what were like Gil's expectations of what he wanted you to measure? Did you pitch what you wanted to measure? What did that world look like? Yeah. Here's what I remember 
<laughs> some PTSD. No. So we should, when this I should have in, been the drunk, this should have been the drunk history episode because then they probably would remember it all more. Yeah. <laughs> even before March of 2020. So even going back into late 2019, that's when I started, you know, so Matt Cannell and I were working here together, like as both as consultants and he was much better in Salesforce than I ever was. So even though I grew up through marketing ops, I never really touched Salesforce because I was at all these big companies and it was like sales ops were always work Salesforce. So I never really got that great at it. But it didn't really matter here in 2019 because we were only using Salesforce to track closed one ops. So like the only thing that was in Salesforce was like once something actually closed one. So no, not even closed loss or anything. Just Salesforce, if somebody looked at it, they're like, my God, you guys have 100% conversion to customers. Like, oh, good job. Um, but that's really what it was. It was just a, it was basically like a billing system. <laughs> you know, I didn't even know that. Yeah. And Logan wasn't. Yeah. Logan wasn't putting anything in. He was tracking his opportunities in Excel. And so it was pretty. Why were we paying and for Salesforce? I don't know. Actually, good question. I have no idea why. Maybe like the invoicing system. I don't know. Like I said, I think it was just like a transactional system. But um, and so we couldn't really do any demand modeling at all because we had no idea what kind of pipeline would happen and how that pipeline would turn into revenue or anything. And this was also when we were gating content. And so our primary metric was leads. And then of course, demo requests, but we were very much measuring leads. So it was basically like inbound leads, website traffic. And I think that was about it from marketing. Honestly, it really wasn't much. It was just like, those were the two things. And we were, I think we were somewhere around 20 to 30 demo requests in a given month. And we were like super stoked with that at that time. And that was it. It was pretty flat, like for several months. It was just pretty much that. And it was always clawing to get that. And that's what it looked like. And leads were just a misnomer, again, because and so many people, I think, hopefully don't do it today, but we've all done this, or maybe not all, but I'd be doing like content syndication and I'd be bringing the lists in and those were leads. And I was like, look, we got 800 more leads this month because I bought some content syndication and we just uploaded them into HubSpot. Webinars, look at all these leads. And so it was that like- I mean, You're describing the hamster wheel that we joked about in yeah. the intro. And I think we're not here to bash what we're talking about because you have to start somewhere. And we've done that before, whether it was here or at previous companies. But what oh, you were yeah. describing, Jason, is the world that many marketers are still living in and some have been lucky enough to get out of, but it's very familiar to everyone. Oh, I just did it. This was just three years ago. So I had all the experience at that point too, to know not to do that. And I still, it was still like, this is what we have, you know, like, this is what I can do. We had no brand at the time. We had nothing really working for us. We had systems in place, but like nothing to really, no real ads. The ads were pretty bad. So yeah, it was, we were measuring, I think, Sorry. what we could. Also, <laughs> you saying we had systems in place is so funny when I just push you on why were we paying for Salesforce? So we were like paying for Salesforse, but like systems in place is kind of systems a broad purchase. Set. We had systems purchase. <laughs> there, there we go. That's factually yeah. correct. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> we had systems at the ready or not even at the ready. We had systems that we could use, but like none of them were configured right. We were actually doing quite a few swap deals even back then. So we actually had access to some pretty decent tools even in the beginning because we were just doing swap deals, but didn't configure any of them really correctly. So yeah, so that's really how it started. Really basic stuff. I don't remember, I don't think I had lead goals, but it was always Gil asking like, how many leads do we have? And I was always like, oh, look at, you know, kind of like the man behind the screen. Oh, look, we got like hundreds more. And him not knowing that it was like, I just bought these names basically out of a hat and uploaded them into HubSpot. I think I even took a, God, 
I found some this random like list. Yeah, I found some like random list too at one point of like thousands of people. I think, it, oh, it was some kind of eloquent. I don't remember where I got them from now that I don't remember. I just remember it was like a list I was not supposed to be using. And I uploaded all of the, it. It's like thousands of people. I just uploaded it into HubSpot and just like, let's go. Let's email market these people. It was scrappy times with very little resources, I guess. So how and when did you start making this shift away from what you were just describing? Was it more so Matt leading the charge on this when he was still here as a consultant or what did that look like? Yeah. So Matt got Logan, who was our only seller at the time. I think this was right when Olivier and Clay were getting hired. Matt got them to start. Oh, and when that's right. Olivier and Clay got hired. They were like, we have to use Salesforce. So at least like they came in with, all right, we want to use Salesforce to track our opportunities. And so then we got Logan to move his opportunities out of Excel into Salesforce, but we still didn't have historical data. So Matt tried to basically get as good of historical data as possible. And then also start to look at what kind of pipeline do we actually have? And he had built our first demand model, which was actually way more complicated than it needed to be at the time. Matt's very smart and can sometimes like too smart, give you a solution for an enterprise company when you're like a five person team. And so Matt, we love you. And so Matt had built this amazing demand model and we used it for like a quarter and it was like, okay, this actually is, this seems to be work. This seems to be pretty accurate enough. And then Matt left. And I remember Gil was like, Hey, do we update that demand model? And I cracked it open. I couldn't make sense of it at all. Like I was like trying to follow the formulas and where to get this number. I was like, I was so lost. I was like, I, and I think I was too embarrassed to maybe ask him or tell him that I couldn't. This I, is I all new to me, by the way. I haven't heard this yet. Yeah. <laughs> I was like embarrassed to ask him for help because I was like, man, I should know this. And I, it's all right here in front of me. So why can't I figure this out? And so I just rebuilt it, just completely rebuilt it. And I did it in a different way. I did it in a way where I was like, this is how I think of it. Matt was trying to like bake in things that I wasn't ready to bake in, like sales cycle. And okay, if our sales cycle is 90 days and we need to, blow, I was like, that's too complicated. I just need to know like where we are today and what do we need to close the gap? And so I think I built the first one that we started. We kept using the model I built for probably a year and a half and it worked pretty well. But yeah, I had to rebuild it. Um, but once we finally got, and this was a, in the same time, like you were coming in and we were ungating content. So like we got off. So like this is part of that start of the transition. But I always knew like from when I started, I said, I want to carry a pipeline goal. But until we actually have better data, I don't know how to set that up. You know what I mean? And so it was really in that time frame, like March, like when you were hired, we were just trying to figure out, okay, do we have enough data in here on the revenue side and pipeline side? <laughs> I got hired in August, by the way, five months after the date that you just mentioned. But yes, keep going. <laughs> Long time. We're working at this for a while. So I, I guess question on that, though, because you mentioned better data and we're big believers of using imperfect but directional data. When you say better data, what advice would you give to people who are looking to make this jump? What kind of data were you looking for? Was it more the amount of data? Was it like the quality of data? Was it all yeah. the above? You tell me. I think at first I was just looking for major milestones like in a funnel. So what are the major milestone points in a customer's journey and being able to have data around that because I really needed to understand the matriculation from lead all the way down to opportunity so that we could then set goals and then try and get better. Because 
the one thing we always talk about with goals is never go to benchmarks and then set your goals based on some industry benchmarks. Never put your finger in the air. Goals are set by based by knowing where you are today and then coming up with an improvement to that. That's how you set a goal. Not like, oh, that's my sister companies over here all getting this. So we automatically have to get that. Oh, but that means a 50% increase in performance in one month. But that's what the benchmarks are. So just getting these like key journey milestone points, understanding the data at those points and the conversion between them, and then how these things lead to revenue, then that's just the basic point. And it could be three points only, like lead, MQL, opportunity maybe, or qualified lead, meeting, deep late stage opportunity. It can be, it doesn't have to be 18 steps, but but yeah, just getting some key, I think milestone journey points set uh, as the first step. And that's where we went. It's like, okay, let's make sure we have good tracking on these things, wherever we can add historical data in. So we have a little bit of a better picture. We'll do that. And then let's just come up. Where are we at today? What are our conversions rates, good, bad, or ugly? Where just, where are we at? And then coming up with some improvement plans from there. So this takes us to, let's just say the second half of 2020. And this is where I can be more helpful since I was actually at metadata at this time. So we've got the demand model, you're simplifying it, you're starting to collect more data and basically just slowly get better at it. So how did you get from leads to MQLs to them looking at meetings and then finally opportunities? Because like the big thought leaders on LinkedIn all say marketers should be held accountable to pipeline and revenue. And then what people assume is that they just need to stop measuring MQLs and just immediately jump to pipeline and revenue. And like, we're not even truthfully at revenue yet. So how did you get yeah. to, let's say, MQLs to that that next step or two? Yeah. And so when we broke out from leads and we had good enough data, then we understood how demo requests, this conversion rate to meetings, this conversion rate to op, this conversion rate to closed one. And so we just worked it back. And then that's how we set our goals. We're like, okay, sales is responsible for 30% of the revenue. Marketing is responsible for 70. Here's our goal for the year, working it back. So we were kind of like already basing our demo request number on what would turn into revenue, but we were setting our goals up at that demo request number still. And for me, it was it was mainly because I was thinking like, hey, in marketing, this is what we have. This is about as far as we can affect those conversion rates is getting that demo request. Then it's in the hands of sales. Then it's up to them to, and as long as it's the right person, et cetera. And so we started by keeping our goals up at that demo request number. And it was like, that worked for a while. And that's because it was tied to revenue, it was working. So we would hit our demo request number. These conversion rates were actually holding steady or improving or just a slight fluctuation. And so for several quarters, that just worked. We delivered this many demo requests. They turned into this op. They turned into this revenue. We were meeting our goals or exceeding our goals and everything was good. And so that was, that carried us for quite a while. But then the transition point was when things got a little tight and I wanted to get off of this. We just need more demo requests. We just need more demo requests. Because if let's say some of these conversion rates starts to fluctuate, then you just need to put more at the top of the funnel. And I didn't want to have to I didn't want to just have to continuously drive more to the top of the funnel. I wanted to say, hey, let us do what we want to do. Let's ignore the demo requests. But if we can drive this much pipeline, that's what you care about, right? So if I can at least, maybe I have higher quality demos, but way fewer. I just wanted more flexibility. And so that's when we started to talk about moving our goals down the funnel a little bit more. 
so that we could actually have, I consider it more flexibility in what we do to get to that instead of just being like, oh, if there's not enough pipeline, more demo requests. And so that was like the start well, of that trend. And check me on this, but we were stuck there for a bit. And I think Gil was interested. I don't know if you actually know, I have my own hunches as to why, but he was really fixated on the demo number for the longest time. I don't know if it was because of some of the slides that I'd seen in, in fundraising decks where you'd love to show a chart like that where it's up and to the right. But yep. until we got this in check, my own take was that it essentially became this new artificial MQL number. It was just a different metric where you could game it. And just because you're putting more at the top of the funnel into it doesn't mean you're going to get any more at the bottom of the funnel. Yeah. And it was a lot of that. I think it was a lot of vanity. It was like vanity being able to say, show investors these charts. It was like, look, we started at 30 and within four months we were at 200. But then imagine that. Oh, imagine trying to keep that trajectory. It just goes like a exponential like curve to the, to the sky. And I hated that too, because it was like, and Gil... Gil's a great CEO, but he got really focused on the demo request number and just seeing it to continually go up. And, but it was, but it honestly wasn't hard to get him to get us to shift because he just knew, oh, you're, he saw that as taking more responsibility. It's like, oh, okay, you actually want to be responsible for the pipeline. So you're actually going to, there's SDR work in there. There's AE work in there that has to happen. So you're actually going to take some responsibility for that part too. And so I think he saw it as like us taking on more responsibility and so it wasn't a, it wasn't too hard of a conversation to like, there, it was a little hard. I remember it was, it was like, yeah, yes, revenue goals, but it, were these demo requests still going to go up? It was something like, it was like, yeah, yes, yes. Set these goals at revenue oh, demo requests. That's just going to keep going up, right? It was almost like you're like a little kid. You're like, all right, look over here. Don't look over here. And it's like, all right, well, what about the demos? <laughs> yeah. Yep. Uh, and, but yeah, I think probably over a quarter or two, it probably, we were able to make that shift. But the fact that we were always building our goals based on the impact we thought it would have to revenue made it a fairly easy shift because we were already it wasn't just like sales saying they needed this many demos and us i actually controlled the demo or sorry the demand model for the entire funnel so like it wasn't sales doing their own little stuff and saying hey we need this because we're going to wait this way and we're going to we're going to sandbag our conversion rates it was just one person me looking at every single one of those and so that did make it a little bit easier too we didn't have we weren't being fed data that we didn't have control over. And so it was, yeah, it was. And then we were able to let go. And because I remember there was one month or quarter where our demo requests went down, even though we were still increasing pipeline and, and close one deals, because what we were doing is we started to look at and we were more accurate with what pipeline's already there. We started to actually have algorithms in the demand model. Okay, what percentage of pipeline is probably going to push to next quarter? So we started to bring all these in. And use that to lower like our top of funnel, putting stuff in the top of the funnel. So sometimes it actually meant we needed fewer demo requests this month than last month, but the opportunities and pipeline are still going up and to the right. And so then that nice chart of like every single month demo requests going up, it, it, now it started to stagnate and go all over the place. And so it wasn't as cool anymore. And in fact, since then it's come down. Like I think there was the highest month was probably 400 or somewhere around that. And we're sitting got it came down. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 250 now at this point. So those charts wouldn't look as pretty anymore. Yeah. So I guess two questions come to mind. So the first question is pipeline and revenue is all the rage right now, but those are really lagging indicators at the end of the day. So how do you recommend people look at leading indicators as they're 
making this move. Yeah. And so like how we set the goal, there's a funnel with journey points on the way. And it depends on how you're measuring. If you're doing gated content and stuff, you're looking at, you're starting at leads. And then you're probably going from leads to demo requests and then demo requests to qualified demo requests, which is prior MQL. Meetings booked, meetings held, opportunities created, stage one all the way through stage five or six. And so these are the key points that we measure. And we just, now I'll say before the recession, our math really held and our those conversion rates just didn't change, they didn't fluctuate. A committed deal was a committed deal and that would close like a certain rate. And then we started to see these fluctuations with the recession and all this, our rates getting wonky. But But before then, it was just very very linear. Like it just made, it just worked out. Like the math just worked out. Conversions rates held, ASPs held or went up. Um, I forget what question you asked I was answering, but that was part of the answer. <laughs> it was just leading indicators. So people know oh, yeah. what to be looking for and what to be measuring before they start to see ops and pipeline and revenue, because yeah. you got to show something. You can't just tell your leadership team and your CEO, like, hey, trust me, you're going to see just wait. pipeline and revenue yeah. here. Yeah, just, just hold wait. on. It's like, coming. Yeah. Let us yeah. know how that goes and you'll be out of the job. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's right. And leading indicators, we have to use leading indicators because we're B2B and we have sales cycles. You know what I mean? So if I was B2C, I was like getting a conversion on the first touch. That's different. I can report on like my revenue right now. But because we've got three, six month sales cycles, if we just wait for the revenue, then we won't really know. We're going to be optimizing on a six month, three to six month cycle, which is like just not fast enough. So, yeah, leading indicators are important for timing of decisions and being able to understand, are you pacing right? And so that's really how we use them. All those metrics, the stage opportunities, the meetings, the demo requests, all of that we look at on a daily basis. And we set these we basically look at it in a pacing way. And so in a given quarter, this, we know so we need- this is perfect, by the way, because my next question was going to be, how often are you looking at this the frequency? So I'll just shut up and keep going. <laughs> yeah. And so we like to look at those key metrics every single day because for a couple of reasons, and we look at them in a pacing way. So like we just imagine that we're going to straight line the performance through a quarter. So let's say I have a goal of 90 opportunities in a quarter. Great. I know I need to do one a day at least. You know what I mean? And so you can pace that out with some math and understand, are you 100% pacing below that, above that? And we have that all the way at demo requests. And so in the beginning of a quarter, we can know, all right, are we on pace that if these conversion rates hold and the ASP holds, we're going to deliver what we thought we were three months from now. And so it just gives you the ability to make quicker decisions, understand what's working, what's not, identify patterns faster than you normally would. If you were just like only measuring down funnel, and that's the most important thing, especially now, you got to find out what's working and what's not as fast as possible. And so looking at these things and understanding when patterns change and then addressing those, that became a really key thing for us. And so, yeah, some people might consider measuring your funnel every day overkill, but I wouldn't do it any other way. So we're going to go off script a little bit, but it's still related to this based on something that you just said. So I've heard you say this before a bunch of different times, but the way we've modeled things at metadata and the way that most companies, B2B companies are modeling their funnel is irrelevant anymore because you can't go off of historical data given what's going on right now in the onset world. So, you know, whether you have the crystal ball or not, I hope that you do. How are you looking at this these days and how are you looking at it differently than maybe you did before? Yeah. And I make a joke, even though it's, it hurts, but the joke I make is we often try and plan for 
a common scenario here? And then what's the worst case scenario that can happen? And these last two quarters, the market has our worst case scenario. Like we came up with, listen, if hell freezes over, this is the bottom of what'll happen. And then all of a sudden it goes below that. And we're like, holy hell, what just happened? Did hell just freeze over? Because we thought we were the most conservative we could possibly be. And that you had multiple people in the room saying, yes, this is the worst case. Yes, this is the worst case. Yes, this is the worst case. And and what happened? Oh, it was worse than the worst case. (laughs) The CFO is even in there like, yep, that makes sense. You know, checks out. And so we're all feeling like, okay, very worst case. This is what happens. And this is how we address it. And then it goes below that. And you're like, wow, what did I miss? And you didn't miss anything. It's just behaviors are changing so fast. People's and especially like in our world, we're selling to marketers, right? And marketers budgets are one of the first to get cut. And we would have, like this last quarter, we had deals in commit, which is like, you basically poke yourself and sign in blood as the AE that like, if this seal doesn't close, you take my firstborn child basically is what a commit means for us. And our season seller was like, yeah. (laughs) And we, we weight those really high and we were expecting those to come in. And then we would have deals that were literally no sign at all of them not closing. And then like a day, two days before the marketer comes to us and they're like, my budget just got slashed like today. And I had no awareness of it leading into this, no indicators that this was going to happen. Just all of a sudden I just got handed this today. And so it's just the planning environment right now is ridiculous. And so I'm, so the couple things is like, first thing I'm trying to do is I'm trying to just like get, trying to get the data ordered in a way that, and agreed upon in a way where it doesn't require us to do 12X pipeline coverage, which like no marketer would ever want to sign up for, but also doesn't put us in a situation where, yeah, no, but also doesn't put us in a situation where we hit our goals, but then the company doesn't meet theirs, right? So I'm like trying to ride this balance with our CFO, CEO, head of sales, where it's okay. Last quarter, our close rate was, let's call it abysmal, do we have to use that as a close rate for this quarter? Or can we make some, hey, sales, can you commit to having a better, or is there reasons why that close rate data was maybe off? Did we do a lot of cleanup last quarter? So we're digging into every single one. And I'm just trying to like, what's a way that I can set this up so that the company can meet their goals, but then my team can also have some successes, meet our goals, get some bonus. What's the right balance of that with the best that I know today? And it's just really hard because if, if I just had of a magic wand, I guess, I'd be like, yeah, let's plan for what last quarter was and let's have enough money to put that much in the top of the funnel and let's make this happen. But we don't. Our budgets also have gone down from last quarter. So yeah, it's a delicate balance. But again, if I didn't have as good of data as I have, or if I wasn't as good with the data, these conversations wouldn't be going as well. The CFO would be like, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong. And then he would have a lack of confidence in us. And then then when they have a lack of confidence, they want more buffer on what your data says. So, and then more buffer means you got to do more work, right? To add that buffer. And so I think again, being incredibly buttoned up with data, being smart about it, being real. And like, if you see something that is, you think is not going to work for the business, calling that out and not just, it's not going to work for marketing, but if this is not going to work for the business, let me be the one to call that out. And then writing that balance of trying to get the team a, a bonus and having successes, but also making sure the company is getting what it needs to grow. So yeah, it's a, I know how you give no answer, but that's how I'm thinking about it right now is. If you had the answer, then we'd be in a perfect spot right now. So it it was more so just your 
Yeah. <laughs> no judgment. No one knows what's going on right now in the economy and especially in B2B software. So I think it'll be helpful for people to hear how you're approaching this in the first place, just knowing how unpredictable, unpredictable it has been over the last, what, two-ish quarters, three-ish quarters. Yeah. And luckily our CEO and CFO, they acknowledge that, shit, this is hard. You know what I mean? They're not coming to us screaming like, what the hell? You said it was going to be this and you didn't do that. We're not getting, they're just like, okay, you said this is what happened. Why? Let's try and learn from it. But there, there's some understanding that now we do take a responsibility for ourselves too, but we're not saying the whole thing is the economy. We're definitely not, but no, like, okay, not there's a part that. of this the economy, but there's also parts of this that we can fix and get better at. But there's acknowledgement that there's this thing right now in this time that means that we're not going to be great at forecasting and predicting. So last question for you. This is going to be a, a longer open-ended question, which I know are probably your favorite questions. <laughs> Looking back in the, what, the three plus years that you've been at Metadata, could you do anything over again as you were moving from MQLs to pipeline and revenue, knowing what you know now? Just trying to figure out some advice for people who are looking to make this jump and can hopefully learn from mistakes that we've made. Yeah, I would say... A simple one is for the for a fairly long time, I wasn't actually considering existing pipeline in the future quarter, moving pipeline. I was just taking the hard number. This is money. This, I remember yeah. this so well. Keep going. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I was just taking the hard number of, all right, sales has a $2 million, let's say $2 million goal next quarter. And I was just backing that up to exactly what I'd have to deliver from an inbound perspective to hit the $2 million. Not even really considering what pipeline's already in there or what did they push from this quarter to next quarter that they didn't close? And that just made us overwork, which might be why we beat our goals several times, like as a company too, because we were delivering more pipeline than what sales actually needed to close to hit their goals. So it might've been a good thing, but it also required us to do more work in marketing and try and figure more things out, which again, is not a bad thing, but maybe overworked an already small team just to really make sure that number was hit when maybe it could have been lower and then we could have maybe worked on other things and made progress and other things. So I'd say that was one is, and I thought it was okay. Cause I was like, Hey, we're pretty, we're pretty immature in our demand model right now. And so this is okay. But I was shortchanging myself and our team basically. And so I'd say that was probably one of the things is definitely consider what is existing pipeline and the stuff that sales is going to push from quarter to quarter. Cause that is still real pipeline, especially if you have, and this, I guess maybe this is the second one. Have very well, you want to make sure it's a real pipeline, which I think is a key yes. difference because yes. to interrupt, just this, I get PTSD from this because it's happened multiple times here when there are not strict definitions around what an opportunity is and what real pipeline is and what fake pipeline is. AEs can then push ops into future quarters and it makes it appear as if you have some pipeline to start from or you maybe even have enough pipeline to start from. When in reality, it should have never been pipeline to begin with. So you have to make sure that whatever you're exiting a quarter with, that you know that is real pipeline that you can count on and that your sales team has scrubbed the shit out of it, really, which is something that we still have to do nowadays. Yeah, I still have to remind them like, hey, clean up your pipeline. But now they know because we tell them now we're going to base our inbound on whatever is in there. We're going to take that out of what we have to deliver. So if you want more inbound clean that shit up. You want less, go ahead and leave it a parking lot. But it got so, and we're still dealing with this problem because we don't even wait stage one or two at all. We were looking at pipeline. And so I'm my, now my question to the sales team is, 
If I can't wait this at all, then why the why the F are we even in pipeline? Hold on. We're in episode 58, and now you're saying why the F? Where it got the explicit rating. Yeah. <laughs> I, I know. That's funny. I think I swore a couple too, time, too many times on this episode, but trying to reel it back in. No. And honestly, and then sales doesn't even wait stage three right now when they're doing their calculations. And I'm like, then why? We need better. So we still need better definitions for pipeline because I still am like, if it's in stage one, some of those close, and that's better than a demo request. You know what I mean? And so we should be able to wait them in some way. And right now, I can't wait them at all because it's just... And this is some of this is just because of the environment, recession, that kind of thing, of course. But I'm kind of like, hey, let's get if we have better definitions of this, like much stricter and consistent, like across all AEs of how they what stage one, what stage two, this would actually work and we'd be able to associate weights. But I think right now it's a little bit of a like what each AE thinks kind of a thing, you know, and and then parking lot issues and like moving things around. And so, yeah, we're still working on that one. So we are right at time on DGU this week. I think this is one of those episodes where we want to encourage you to reach out to Jason. I'm going to really volunteer you this with this because you're closer to it than anyone here at Metadata, which most marketing leaders are not this close to the data. But if you have questions around how to make this jump, what not to do, as well as what to do, please reach out to Jason in the community on LinkedIn. We're here for you. This is something that we're a little bit further ahead, I think, than most marketers, but we all started from the same place and you got to start somewhere. Yeah. Uploading leads. <laughs> yes. Content syndication. If you take one thing away, don't do that anymore. No. Hopefully you took a bunch more on this week, but we will definitely see you next week on DGU. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everybody. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Demand Gen U. Demand Gen U is brought to you by Metadata, the no BS marketing OS. B2B marketers use Metadata's marketing OS to drive more revenue without all of the manual and repetitive work. From running paid campaigns to personalizing web experiences to optimizing everything to revenue, Metadata automates all of this. This means less time spent on low-value tasks and more time spent on strategy, creativity, and driving revenue. 